Revolt Black News, presented by State Farm. This week in Revolt Black News, we're tapping into Mental Health Awareness Month. Y'all already know that pain manifests itself in all kinds of ways in hip hop. That goes from the struggle to the trenches to, of course, the trapping of it all. But beyond the bars, what we're actually hearing from the culture is some vulnerability and a desire to have open conversations about things like substance abuse and addiction. Now listen, I know y'all, it's a lot. We have been through a pandemic of problems and tribulations as a black people. But y'all know our people, we are resilient, we are strong, and we know how to get through. So y'all, finally, it's time to put mind over matter and talk about what matters in our minds. Welcome back to Revolt Black News. All right, fam, now it's time to have an important and much needed conversation about substance abuse. Now, the reality is we tend to run from this topic because it's painful and it tends to be taboo. But the reality is the black community and drugs is something we have to challenge and we have to confront. Ever since the crack epidemic from the 1980s and 1990s is something that we have to tackle in order to get in front of. So joining me today, she's an expert in the game. She's a star of Bravo's Married to Medicine. And she's, of course, a physician, Dr. Contessa Metcalf. Doc, thanks for joining. Thank you for having me. Of course. Now, Dr. Contessa, uh, your experience as a physician, and congratulations, by the way, on opening uh, your clinic that you co-own with your husband, Dr. Scott, of course. And one of the things that I really wanted to speak to you about specifically, Dr. Contessa, is you address uh, addiction and addiction treatment, at, among other things, of course, in your clinic. Um, and you've also been so courageous and vulnerable to share your personal connection, of course, uh, to addiction and the devastation it causes uh, due to you know your father's uh, experience in that in that situation. Um, I want to ask you if you had to give just a baseline kind of reconciliation as to the, the correlation between the black community and the devastation of drug abuse, uh, where do you start? Well, I would say that we would have to go back to the 1970s and the war on drugs. So I would say it was a noble kind of effort to eliminate the horrible effect that drugs were having on our community, but it really turned into a portal for mass incarceration. And it just further devastated families. And it left children um, like me, who was a child of addiction, um, in a situation where I lost my father. My father ended up going to prison, and he was treated as a criminal as opposed to someone suffering from disease. And that is actually kind of the, um, the impact that this whole war on drugs has had. We've changed the perception of a person who's suffering from substance use disorder to a person who is a criminal and an addict. And so it changes the whole approach and uh, empathy that people would um, have on people who are suffering from a disease. And it affects, of course, the communities that are being plagued by it. I think that's exact. I know it's right because my experience, Dr. Contessa, you know, uh, I started my career as a criminal defense lawyer. And I worked as a public defender and I saw firsthand what you are describing, this phenomenon of taking what should be patients, people that are suffering from the disease of addiction yes. and literally statutorily criminalizing it. So now we're, we're treating them and dealing with them as criminals. And I believe, Dr. Contessa, that's why as a community, we are so um, resistant and hesitant to discuss it because it feels like something that we've. Um, yeah, right. It's something that we've been taught to be ashamed of. 
versus something that we need to acknowledge and, and open our hearts and minds to so that we can have these much needed conversations. Uh, I just want to share because of course you've, you've so beautifully shared here. I also had a family member uh, that suffered with substance abuse and as such, I was able to find, I was really devastated, Dr. Contessa, as I know you were. So I went to Al-Anon. I was an adult um, during my family member's uh, addiction struggle. And Al-Anon was so important to me to understand so, that a lot of it, right? It's such a correlation between trauma. And for yeah. those watching that don't know what Al-Anon is, uh, it is a, a sister organization, so to speak, to uh, Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous. It is for those of us, Dr. Contessa and I, and so many others of you watching who are touched because a loved one, a family member, a friend uh, is struggling through this disease known as addiction. So please, um, we're going to make sure in the episode notes, we put out those resources and many more. Um, but I bring this up to tell you this, Dr. Contessa. Yeah, when I was dealing with my clients, uh, many of whom were stuck in addiction cycles, who sometimes also were charged with criminal activity in addition to their addiction, I realized they were what we called dual diagnosis. Now you're the doctor here, so I'm going to let you describe what that is, but they were people that were dealing with both the substance abuse and also some type of mental health trauma. Can you talk a little That's bit right. about that dual diagnosis syndrome? Well, what's interesting is that people, you have a higher propensity of actually suffering from substance use disorder if you have not only an undiagnosed, but an untreated mental illness. And so in particular, in, so let's just kind of put it in perspective because we're, you know, people will jump onto this whole perception that we're, it's just because black people are more likely to use an illicit substance. Well, in the past month, 17 million white people um, confessed to using an illicit substance versus 4 million African-Americans. However, if we're looking at the propensity of being incarcerated, Blacks make up about 12.5% of illicit users, but they're about 33% of people who get convicted of a drug crime. And so that's telling you that there is, there's actually an issue with the disparity of the approach and how people are looked at. Now, going back to that issue with, um, and especially in our community in particular, there is this stigma of dealing with mental illness and asking for help. And actually, we really believe in, you know, I think we talked about it last time, the, the silence, this, this mask of silence over what you're suffering through, dealing with the trauma. And when you don't do that, then you're going to look for some other way to soothe that burden that you're carrying, because it just doesn't go away. Ignoring it doesn't make it any better. And so you find a way to self-soothe, to self-medicate. And that's typically what's happening when people are not being treated for their anxiety, their depression. Um, and some of the other more serious diagnosis, and that's what they look for. Now, Dr. Contessa, tell us a little bit about treatment. Um, in addition to yeah. uh, once we can maybe identify that there is some kind of trauma or issue, depression, like you're saying, mm -hmm. or um, bipolar, mm -hmm. some kind of disorder, something going on emotionally. Maybe yeah. it's not even um, something to be diagnosed that severely, but, but something's going on. There is some addiction or some substance abuse at play. What does treatment look like and what are those opportunities? Well, it's so interesting that you say that because um, let's start with the role of the physician and what the role that the physician has really played in this whole, which is appropriate, the public health crisis called the opioid crisis. What has happened was, well, when I was in medical school, we were always taught that pain is the fifth vital sign. And what that means is that I would go in to see a patient and I would come back out and I would present to my attending, hey, you know, um, you know, Mr. Smuckatelli is a 27-year-old, blah, blah, blah and his blood pressure is this, his temperature is this, and they would say, what's the pain? On a scale of one to 10, did you ask mm. about pain? And I would actually fail that assessment if I didn't. And then are we dealing with that wow. person's pain? That was the 
appropriate way. We absolutely need to do that. But what then happened was we were giving people medications that sometimes were dis mm -hmm. disproportionate to the pain that they were experiencing. And then we then created mm -hmm. this addiction epidemic. When then we said, right. we're not gonna do that anymore, we pulled people off these medications, these opioids, and they are looking for something to give them that same feeling. And the feeling, mm -hmm. if you talk to a person who suffered from addiction, from um, dealing with a substance use disorder, especially an opioid, they say it makes them feel like they just got a kiss from Jesus or a hug from their mom. And so wow. if you, so understanding that that's what they're seeking, they're not gonna just let that go. And so what happens is they go to something that's more available, that's cheaper, and that's heroin. Same exact medication, basically the same drug. And so what mm. doctors need to do is to assess patients and make sure that we're dealing with that and then putting them on things like um, uh, there's a medicine called Suboxone, right? There's an actual medicine that we can give you to help titrate you off of your um, your opioid. And we need to start treating it like a disease and dealing with that. And of course, you know, there is um, 1-800-662-HELP, which is the SAMHSA helpline. And that actually can you know, get you the help that you need, whether it be depression, anxiety, or dealing with a substance use disorder. But we have to approach this like the disease that it is. All right, Dr. Contessa, this is such important information and we gotta really unpack this thing thoroughly. What we're gonna do is we're gonna take a quick break. We're gonna pick things back up a little bit later in the show. Now up next, we've got this week's headlines. Stick around, we have more Revolt Black News after this. Welcome back to Revolt Black News. Here are today's headlines. We start with an update in the investigation of three Poscotank deputies who shot and killed 42-year-old Andrew Brown Jr. Now, the district attorney called the death tragic, but justified due to his actions. Let's take a look. Wednesday, April 21st, 2021, Andrew Brown Jr. of Elizabeth City, North Carolina, was shot and killed by three deputies with the Pasquotank County Sheriff's Office. This incident occurred at the residence of Mr. Brown, located at 421 Perry Street in Elizabeth City, North Carolina. After reviewing the investigation conducted by the North Carolina State Bureau of Investigation, Mr. Brown's death, while tragic, was justified because Mr. Brown's actions caused three deputies with the Pasquotank County Sheriff's Office to reasonably believe it was necessary to use deadly force to protect themselves and others. While the officer-involved shooting that resulted in the death of Andrew Brown occurred on Wednesday, April 21st, law enforcement involvement with Mr. Brown began in the weeks prior and put the wheels in motion that eventually led to the attempted service of arrest and search warrants on April 21, 2021. And the Brown family attorney, Chantel Cherry Lassiter, in response said this, the deputies did not follow their own policies. They were not being safe during the interaction. And the FBI has denounced a separate federal rights investigation. And in another week of heightened Israeli-Palestinian conflict, President Joe Biden has expressed that he expects de-escalation and a path forward via a ceasefire between Israel and Hamas. Now, internationally, the European Union has also called for a ceasefire with 26 out of 27 nations agreeing on this statement. 
We support the right to defense for Israel and right to security, also for the Palestinians. And we consider that security for Israel and Palestine, which requires a true political solution, because only a true political solution could bring peace. And to do that, we need to restore a political horizon. And former President Donald Trump is in the hot seat as New York Attorney General Letitia James has joined the criminal investigation of the Trump Organization. Now, the investigation has been underway since 2019 when Trump was still in office. Trump has responded to the criminal probe, calling it corrupt, and a lawyer for the Trump Organization has declined to comment. Over to vaccine news. The U.S. Chief Medical Advisor, Dr. Anthony Fauci, says that the variant of COVID-19 that is severely impacting India is actually protected by all vaccines currently approved in the United States. Now, concern is growing, however, as the strain could become the dominant variant in the UK. Let's take a look. More situation with regard to the B617 and the B1618 that have been identified in India. And on both these circumstances, you see that these were neutralized with only a 2.5-fold diminution in TIDA, which, as I mentioned in previous press briefings, that's well within the cushion effect of the capability to protect against infection and certainly against serious disease. So in summary, this is just another example of the scientific data accruing, and as I've shown you here, literally over the last few days, indicating another very strong reason why we should be getting vaccinated. And the House has passed an anti-Asian hate crime bill this week. Now, it directs the Department of Justice to expedite the review of COVID-related hate crimes that were reported to law enforcement agencies and help them establish ways to report such incidents online and perform public outreach. Let's look. The 6,600 incidences of anti-AAPI attacks in all 50 states have been reported over the last year. Businesses vandalized, seniors attacked, families in fear. This epidemic is a challenge to the conscience of our country. That is why Congress responded swiftly and effectively with the COVID-19 Hate Crimes Act. All right, y'all, that's it for this week's headlines. Now ahead, I'm gonna pick up this important conversation with Dr. Contessa about substance abuse and addiction. But first, listen, there's been a lot of energy in Washington lately for the Senate to pass legislation allowing citizenship for undocumented immigrants brought to the U.S. as kids. Now, we refer to them as dreamers. So listen, y'all, it's important that we have this conversation because on this show, we talk often about equality and having a fair shot at a fair future. So now I'm going to hand things over to our friends, Kari Lazier-White from the Brotherhood Sister Soul and actress and activist, Rosario Dawson. Thank you both. On behalf of Brotherhood Sister Soul, I have the pleasure of welcoming Rosario Dawson. She is an artist and activist. She also received the Frida Kahlo Award for Innovative Creativity from the Brotherhood Sister Soul in 2011 and has been a longtime supporter and advocate for our work. Hey, Rosario, how are you tonight? I am well. So, you know, Rosario, when we think about some of the most essential issues we're facing today as a nation, as a community, when I think about what Brotherhood Sister Soul is facing with our young people, what the Lower East Side Girls Club are facing with their young people, the issue of immigration, of how we treat and respond to so many folks in this country who are undocumented and deserve a 
path towards citizenship, when we talk about dreamers, you know, you've been a leading voice on this issue. And we've just come through an unbelievably combative political season um, where so many folks who are immigrants were demonized um, by the previous administration. I'm wondering what your thought, how you're feeling now. What's the way forward? Are you, are you confident? Do you, do you see the light? I have hope for sure. I've just seen too much organizing on the ground. Um, young people, especially undocumented and unafraid who are willing to put themselves out there um, and create community around these issues and visibility to each other, you know, because it, it's felt like a, an other issue and an invisible issue, I think, for a lot of folks, you know, um, seeing children being separated from their parents at the border, I think, was very galvanizing for a lot of people to step up and lead with humanity. I've watched so many different people kind of come forward and we are going to pass this Dreamers Act, the Promise Act, like we are going to make this stuff happen. It might not be yesterday or today and maybe not tomorrow, but it's coming. It's time is definitely coming because it needs to, and it's time for it to. And I think that one of the powerful things we've seen from Black Lives Matter just this past year and where it started in these past years is what organizing and community building can do to really kind of push um, meaningful agendas forward and help educate people as to why they even have certain biases and prejudices that have stopped them from being able to be more active in these spaces. And that's really, I mean, that's what blew my mind this past year is how much education was embedded to the organizing. to Revolt Black News. I'm your guy, Rodney Rakai, here to have one of the more important conversations that we can have in our community, one about mental health. So the pandemic has been particularly hard on our people. As we've seen in some major cities, suicide rates have doubled within our community, while for other races, they have decreased. Here today to help us navigate this conversation is a man putting in work as an MC, but also as a mental health advocate, none other than G Herbo. Good brother, we appreciate you joining us, family. Thanks for having me, man. Appreciate it, bro. So last summer, you launched your organization, Swerving Through Stress, which provides mental health care for Black youth. So a year in, how's that been going for you? It's been good. It's been good, man. Um, a lot of people reached out as far as, like, resources, you know, volunteer and stuff like that. And a lot of, you know, the kids who I launched it for are taking it more serious with, as to not necessarily just being able to talk to somebody about, you know, that they where they are mentally, but just wanting to lean more on the community. You know, we got our facility in Chicago, uh, me and my partners, we, we bought a facility. And a lot of like, you know, the local basketball programs and youth programs been doing a lot of stuff there, you know. So not only was it just to be an outlet for people to, you know, vent, but a lot of times, you know, kids aren't necessarily ready or able to speak on, you know, a lot of the trauma that they endure. But I think it, it helps to just keep them active. You know what I'm saying? So that's what Swerving Through Stress has been over the over the past year, just an outlet for the community. 
Hey, man, that's fire. And I don't think there's anybody else that would do a better job than you being like the face of something like this. People galvanize around you. So when it comes in the wide range of subject matter and your music and just this age of hip hop, do you ever kind of worry that you have a group of fans who appreciate your tracks about PTSD and mental health and then the other stuff could potentially go over their heads? And how do you reconcile the responsibility you have as an artist in making music for the next generation? I think as an artist, it's better to just be yourself and just let everything come out naturally because there's a lot of people in the world, you know what I'm saying? A lot of people that relate to you, a lot of people understand, and there's a lot of people that don't. It may or may not go over their head because at the end of the day, you know, I am an artist. You know, I have to be creative. Um, I'm still growing as a man, you know what I'm saying? I'm a father. I'm a lot of things. So I feel my music is just really a, a reflection of who I am as a person, and I use it as an outlet. Music always been like a form of therapy for myself, you know, I, I rap to get a lot of stuff off my chest and to help people as well. So I'm helping myself while I'm helping other people. Let's talk about drug and substance abuse, which has been tough for a lot of people in our community. You know, a lot of us are still mourning the loss of Juice World, who passed in December 2019. You know, you had the opportunity to collaborate with him in your title track, PTSD. You know, what was that experience like working with him? What kind, what kind of man was he? Um, you know, Juice was my little brother, man. It was our relationship much deeper than just music um so it came out natural like the whole record ptsd i felt like nobody I, it wouldn't be anybody else that fit on the record he was somebody that openly spoke on you know what i'm saying his his mental health space and where he was mentally and the trauma that he endured and substance and drug abuse because i too was you know what i'm saying uh addicted to drugs addicted to pills and promethazine with codeine and smoking weed Juice was growing so fast, and a lot of his problems was coming to him a thousand miles a minute. So I used to tell him, like, you know, you got to deal with it. You got to just face it head on, like whatever it is, whether it's problems with your girl, whether it's problems with the music industry, whether it's you being frustrated with how your music come across to people. You just got to be yourself and be openly, you know what I'm saying, vulnerable about a lot of this stuff. You know, him meeting his demise at, you know what I'm saying, such a young age, such an early time, of course, it, it touched everybody. It affected me in a in a specific way because I had a personal relationship with him, you know what I'm saying, as my little brother. And I, I think about him every day, of course. I'm glad that his legacy will always be remembered. And a lot of people are taking, you know, mental health a lot seriously. I myself took drugs because we don't really know how to deal with a lot of the stuff that we face on a day-to-day -day basis and we use it as an escape, as a gateway to not deal with a lot of these things. But at the end of the day, you have to. When you wake up the next day, you're still going to be, you know what I'm saying, having the same problems. You're still going to face adversity. Because I speak openly about me being addicted to drugs, about me having to go to um, a rehab facility, a detox facility more than once to get myself off of drugs, you know what I'm saying? So if I can help anybody in any way, um, I'm just happy to be able to because it's a serious matter. Oh man, and we're proud of you, you know, for putting that work in. It's, it's not a, it's not an easy thing by any stretch of the imagination. Um, so for you to pause your life, you know, at that point and go to rehab is is tremendous, brother. And I salute you for that, like, for real. That's man, that's major. So you know, as you just said, it's, it's certainly no secret. You know, Juice World put his pain or any self-medication he felt in his music, his lyrics, you know? And then you look at an older hip-hop generation like the Juicy J of 3-6 Mafia, who a couple weeks after Juice passed said, you know, if I inspire anybody to do drugs, I apologize. So this isn't to put any blame or any responsibility on anyone whatsoever. You know, I just want to be clear about that. 
Um, but I do want to ask, you know, what conversation do you think is worth having going forward in our culture, in our music for our younger generations? Um, I think the conversation is worth having is for people to understand. You know, a lot of times they put a stigma on on a black man, of course, but the younger generation, as far as all the negativity that's going on, all the killing and all of that stuff, but it really just stems from generational trauma. A lot of the killing and stuff like that that been going on for generations only comes from trauma and people having post-traumatic stress and feeling like they can't leave out the house without a gun or they would die. But I feel like if I didn't go through a lot of the stuff I went through early on, I wouldn't be the person I am today. You know, so you got to understand both sides of it and just figure out how to take your pain and your trauma and turn it into something positive. You know what I'm saying? Put it into your craft, put it into sports, put it into your schoolwork and put it into anything that's going to get you out of that environment and not keep you into it. You know? we, we definitely got to change how normal it is to see young black people dying. Like it's normal. normal. Like from a, it doesn't make any sense. At five, six years old, you start to understand that at any given moment, your life can be taken away. You got to go the rest of your life. Just trying to, have, to be normal in your thought process. That's not a normal thing to understand that at any given moment, you know, you have to deal with and cope with death and potentially your own. Like that's that's not that's not healthy. So it's no wonder people are are taking drugs to escape that reality because that's a that's a horrendous truth to live under. That no other group of people on this planet have to live with day in and day out like you know like like black men that in this country have to deal with. This it's, it's spooky, exactly. bro. There is a light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, we don't know when this pandemic is officially going to be over. Although, if you look at Atlanta, if you look at Texas and some other places, Miami is it never <laughs> it never started. Um, but to anybody yeah, out there who, who's still struggling, you know, to deal with these times, to have to deal with the isolation, to deal with really only having their own voice to rely on day in and day out as they've been isolated and alienated from their friends and family, do you have any words that you want to leave them with? to help them get get through these dark times? Lean towards it. You know what I'm saying? You have to lean towards a lot of the adversity and the things that you face in life and move through, move past it. You know what I'm saying? Maneuver through the obstacles that life throw at you. You know what I'm saying? And, and the way that I do it is understanding that I'm not the only person that's going through tough times. Of course, especially being in a pandemic, you aren't the only person that's in it. You know what I'm saying? The whole world, the entire globe is going through a pandemic. Even in, you know what I'm saying? These cities who open, Atlanta, Texas, stuff like that, is hard for a lot of people financially. You know what I'm saying? A lot of people are sick. You know, a lot of people's mothers, fathers have died from COVID. You know what I'm saying? Um, so I believe it's just trying to find something or the small things that, that make you comfortable enough to, you know, want to continue to strive day in and day out. You know what I'm saying? And, and I just try to find the little things that keep me going. You know what I'm saying? My music. Um, me being a father, I feel like when you do that and you overcome whatever obstacles that you have to overcome, it feel like a lot of this stuff never happened. You could look back and reflect on it, and of course, it may have made you stronger as a person. But when you get through these things, you actually see the light at the end of the tunnel. You're not feeling depressed anymore. You're able to like, you know, set goals for yourself and, and just keep reaching newer heights. So like, I feel like you just got to keep working every day to you know not be there anymore, not be in the state that you are right now at the moment. Is there any way for people that are interested in, in swerving through stress to be involved or learn more? Where can people find information out about that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, my initiative, uh, we have a website, of course, swervingthroughstress.com. Um, people can reach out all over social media. I have um, handles who I 
on my Twitter, on my Instagram, that I check and DM tweets and messages every day. And we reaching out to, you know, other doctors and therapists and just other people with resources where we can just come back and, you know, put them into the community, man. Whether you are an athlete, another artist, or you want to just help people with, like, you know, techniques and stuff where they could function mentally on a day-to-day basis, you know what I'm saying? So I would say really Instagram is the main way to do it right now. And, of course, you can go on the website. We have a 24-hour um, suicide line and, a, you know, where you could talk to somebody and stuff like that. So you can just go on the website and call this number and somebody there all hours of the day. Black man, I appreciate you, bro. Like this, this was a it was a great conversation. Thank you for your time, sincerely. Like I, I really, Thanks really mean that. You, Absolutely, um, an incredibly important conversation for our people because they need to hear it, but they also need to hear it from someone like yourself. So we hope you'll be back soon. Right. Next up, I'm joined for the Creative Stars new show Run the World for this week's Black Excellence Entertainment. More of old Black news after this. Peace, everybody. I am Rodney Rakai, hosting this week's Black Excellence in Entertainment. And joining me in the celebration is a very important guest with a lot of legendary DNA, as she is a Chicagoan and also a graduate of Spelman College. Of course, I am talking about Lee Davenport, creator and executive producer of Run the World, which recently premiered on Stars. Beloved, how are you feeling? How is your spirit doing today? I am fantastic. It has been an amazing week of festivities celebrating the premiere of the show uh it's my daughter's second birthday today so just full of joy and excitement okay may babies run the world my birthday is next week so i had to give myself a shout out real quick um, happy early thank you i appreciate it it has been a, a very interesting 14 months or so uh considering the pandemic what was it like to create a television show in the face of covid 19. you know it was incredibly challenging <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was incredibly interesting, um, incredibly rewarding. I have to say our New York crew was so incredible and they worked 14, 16 hour days in KN95 masks and they didn't complain and they took safety so seriously. You know, I felt like my experience with the pandemic was different not having been in New York and having and knowing like what New York went through and the level of kind of intensity that they had been through their willingness to come back to work, to rock this show out for us. We were the only crew, I think, filming at the time that didn't have a COVID shutdown. Um, wow. You know, it was just tremendous, tremendous work. I love New Yorkers. I love their spirit. And I'm just so grateful to them for, you know, coming to work every day to make this dream come true. Absolutely. And those COVID compliance officers on set do not be playing. They like, they're, they're about their business. Oh. I mean, April Steger, if you ever hear this, like, thank you. Well, let's talk about the show. Uh, it premiered this past Sunday, uh, May 16th, and already has a long list of fans and supporters. You got Kelly Rowland shouting you out. For anybody out there who has not checked it out yet, what is the premise of Run the World? What can they expect from the show? Sure. Run the World is a story about four girlfriends, you know, who love each other to death who are trying to figure out how to be real adults in New York City, specifically Harlem. Uh, they are figuring out love and career. 
and they have their girls by their sides and they are, you know, on the pursuit of, I say, world domination, whatever that looks like for you. Um, and doing it with their best friends by their side. Um, yeah, and it looks like you, you're taking over the world slowly but surely. You've been involved in some some great some great projects. You worked on the Boomerang reboot, and there's a lot of synergy between this show and one of the all-time great shows in Living Single. You have Yvette Lee Bowser on as an EP. You have Erica Rose Alexander, aka Maxine Shaw, attorney at law, as a cast member. How important is it in our community for some of our favorite stories and storytellers to continue to be involved across generations in our new projects? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think, right, like all of us have the responsibility to help the next generation. And Yvette has just done such an amazing job. I stand on the legacy of so many women, um, some who are heavily celebrated, some who are not. You know, this industry has not been as kind to Black women as it is right now. So it's just really an honor to have that continued hand coming down through the community and helping us continue to make art that we feel proud of and that we feel reflects our experiences. Surely, surely. So without giving us too much, because you can't spill too much tea, um, what are you most excited about for the rest of the season? What What's what's to come? Uh, actually, I would say I'm most excited about episode four, which is called I Love Harlem, uh, because it is just that. It is a romp around Harlem, very much in the vein of you know, some of my favorite uptown Saturday and Sunday fun days. Uh, I'm really excited for people to see the neighborhood captured in that way and get the cultural experiences and hear the sights and the sounds and really feel those vibes. Like, you know, like we said, we filmed in COVID and it was the fall and so it was cold. And so we had to like piece together sunny days to try to get this like summer day in Harlem and the, like almost the winter in New York. Um, so it came with a lot of hard work and the girls were freezing but you can't tell because they just seem overjoyed and happy. And I, I'm really excited for Harlem to see that episode. Awesome, awesome. Well, Lee, while you're with us, there's some more Black Excellence news this week. So HBO Max is getting an eight-episode revival of the hit show project Greenlight from Issa Rae Miramax Television. Uh, the reboot will focus on the next generation of talented female filmmakers, and they'll be given a chance to direct a feature film. So as a Black woman executive producer in Hollywood, how do you feel about this news? Oh, it's incredible. I'm such a fan of Issa. She's just done such a tremendous job kind of moving, you know, our images forward. And, you know, to see her having the success is amazing. Absolutely. Absolutely. And she looks amazing on all these magazine covers that she has going on. She's been killing it. Playing the game right now. Like, go Issa. <laughs> We also have some exciting news for Atlanta fans because while the chairman of FX, John Langraff, recently did not give a precise air date for the next season of Atlanta, he did say it is currently amidst production in Paris and Amsterdam. Very interesting and will likely air sometime in 2022. Uh, what are your thoughts on, on Atlanta and Donald Glover specifically? I love Donald Glover and I love Atlanta. I think it's an absolutely brilliant show. I was really bummed when you know he said he wasn't going to make any more seasons. And so now I'm very excited that it's coming back. Uh, yeah. You know, I think he has a fascinating voice, and I think he created some iconic characters, and we hadn't gotten enough of them yet. It's been, like, the longest time in between, like, last episodes and whenever the next episode airs, I think, in TV history. It'll be, like, five years, I think, in total since we've had the last episode of Atlanta. It's insane. I mean, I know he didn't want to do it, and I know it's like father passed and things were happening, but I mean, I think the appetite for it is just as hungry as it was, you know, if it would have been 
12 months after the last. So it's, it's even more exciting. It's like, all right, well, what you got to say now, you know? Yeah, especially considering the rise of the other cast members, um, you know, obviously they've, they've gone on to do some pretty amazing things, specifically Lakeith and Brian as well. So they, they've been killing it. All right, Lee, this was so much fun. Thank you for your time. Shout out to Spelman College. Hey. Thank you. Go Spelman. Hey. <laughs> Best of luck to you and everything that you have going on now and in the future. And next up, Ebony returns for an important conversation about substance abuse with Married to Medicine's Dr. Contessa Metcalf. Stick around. More Revolt Black News after this. My name is Marie Revere. I'm 21 years old. I'm located currently in Atlanta, Georgia. I'm the owner and creator of Moonex Cosmetics, which is a vegan handmade skincare and body care line. We make array of cleansers, toners, uh, moisturizers, body scrubs, body moisturizers. I definitely say black entrepreneurship is very important because one thing I've learned from owning a business is us as black people, we are able to really change. If we all just really come together and bind with something, like it, it's phenomenal. Even a lot of my customers, I want to say a lot of my customers are like 90% African-American. You know, without my customers, I would have never been able to make a million in eight minutes or the second time make two million in 20 minutes. You know what I'm saying? Anything like that. These people are binding together who don't even know me, don't even know, you know, they know a little bit about me, but don't really know my backstory. Every single time I'm selling out, every single time I'm, you know, making a great amount of money, being able to grow my business every single time. I'm a firm believer in whatever we put our minds to, we're able to do. People always come to me, I want to start a business, I don't know what to do. Just start. That's the simplest thing you could really do. Get your LLC, get your trademarks, get your URLs, get your Instagram URLs, get your website host domains, get everything you need. And one thing I always tell myself too is stay in your lane. You can't be in your own lane and worried about someone else because you're going to swerve in someone else's lane. Thank you guys so much for stopping by and listening to me speak with Revolt TV. You can find me at Moonex Cosmetics LLC on Instagram or shop my products if they're available at www.moonexcosmetics.com. Welcome back. All right, as promised, I'm picking things back up in this important conversation about substance abuse and addiction with Dr. Contessa Metcalf. One of my clients when I was practicing, Dr. Contessa, she was a nurse. Uh, she was a nurse. Uh, she was a registered nurse. Uh, she was at a hospital for over 15 years. She suffered a back injury, very similar to what you're yeah. describing. And she was uh, given an opioid uh, medication to treat the pain. And eventually, you know, she became addicted because of the nature of that particular substance. And when she ran out of opportunities to get refills legally, um, she did turn to access on the street. Uh, devastated her right. career, devastated her family, devastated her financial situation. And ultimately, um, she found herself intersecting with the criminal justice system, which so many people That's do. Normal. Um, it's so normal. And so I also want to encourage people uh, that find themselves at that intersection of both the, the, uh, the, uh, the physical kind of medical uh, dilemma of yeah. the addiction and also the criminal justice one. A lot of jurisdictions have drug treatment court. Drug treatment yes. court is very important because it's, yes, it's it, yeah, right, right. I, I was yeah. very I blessed to practice in, in those courtrooms. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of families could have been preserved had they only existed in the 80s and the 90s. And they have been, they were something that, you know, can, when people are of color and they are intersecting the criminal justice system, had they been referred to drug court as opposed to, you know, being put in, incarcerated and then, you know, dealing with this whole three strike situation, which is, oh, I mean, that's a whole other conversation that we can go on. But I'll tell you that, you know, the most important thing also is just to, for the people who are listening, who don't, who are not suffering from substance abuse, to understand that we've got to stop calling people addicts. We've got to stop treating them like um, they're weak and they don't love you. Because again, this is an organic brain disease. What happens is you actually have reorganization of your brain. It actually affects the actual connections in your brain. And that takes time to restructure. And that happens again with also intervention from medications, from um, treatment, therapy, and people need support and help. That doesn't mean you have to enable people. And that is one of the reasons why Al-Anon is a wonderful organization for people who are helping people navigate um, addiction. You also need support because you have to figure out what is what am I doing that's helping and what am I doing that's hurting this person? Because I know I didn't know, and I know one of the worst things that I did is I hung my father out to dry. And I lost those years of life with my father and I regret them. And he also, I think, suffered much longer because he ended up having essentially no support. So when you don't have anyone who's rooting for you and who's in your life, then what's your motivation to improve? Because relapse is normal. Relapse is actually expected in addiction. It really is. It's a part of the cycle. And so understanding that this is not somebody, again, it's not weakness, it's just a part of it. And that helps to relieve some of the guilt from the people who are trying to, um, I guess, have the willpower for someone else understand that it's really not about willpower. It's about, it's a process. And it's for most people a lifelong process. But it doesn't mean that you can't, because most, actually African-Americans are more likely to engage and request treatment. But the problem is because of that intersection with the, yes, can you believe that? They're actually more likely to engage treatment, to request treatment and to get treatment. But they're also more likely to not be successful in treatment because they end up in the criminal justice system, they lose the support. And then of course they're, fear of criminalization. And um, and so, yeah, so it's so very important to support people through that and figuring out the right way to do that. Final question for you, Dr. Contessa. Just like we talk about the dual diagnosis that can involve both the uh, kind of physical addictive properties and also those uh, emotional uh, mental health challenges, can you talk a little bit about maybe dual treatment? Uh, because I know yeah. sometimes it, it, the treatment can involve both therapy and mental health treatment and also uh, the kind of, uh, I guess, physical, me- medical treatment, I guess is the right term, uh, that a, an office like yours can offer? Well, cognitive behavioral therapy is actually, that is the baseline. Like, that is absolutely true, whether it be that you're talking about, you know, depression, anxiety, um, bipolarism, schizophrenia, and all the other kind of mental health diseases that people are suffering from. But underlying that is, of course, you know, with substance abuse, you have to figure out coping mechanisms so you won't have to deal with the relapse. So you can get to a point, because what's gonna happen in the world is that you're gonna have to be exposed to all those triggers that you've had in the past. The thing that led you to seeking some kind of calm from the storm that is brewing inside of you. And if you don't learn how to navigate that in a more productive way, then you're going to find another coping mechanism that is, you know, that's maladaptive. There are, um, there are treatments and harm reduction is important, meaning that, like you said, some people are not going to be able to go from, you know, um, using this much to not using at all. Using less over time is still Mm -hmm. a win, right? Um, Mm -hmm. But you got to meet people where they are. 
and give people the opportunity to keep living because that's what it's about. It's about you surviving so you can go get treatment and so you can recover. Um, but if you don't give people a chance to do that, then we're, we're in trouble. So I think we really have to, you know, help people understand the power of naloxone and it should be everywhere. And it should be something that everyone knows about. And when you identify someone, just like when we identify people going through a stroke, when you identify someone right. who's suffering from an overdose, it should be just like, you know, anything else, you jump right into where is an naloxone and you give them that shot and you help them come out of it. So, yeah. Dr. Contessa, since we appreciate you so much for having a very difficult but necessary conversation that will literally save lives. And I want to invite everybody to join me as we check out Bravo Sunday nights at 9 p.m. Eastern to catch Dr. Contessa on Married to Medicine. All right, y'all. Now, listen, since we've already given you tons of resources in today's episode, now I want to talk to you about something that's exciting but important. That's how we conduct ourselves as we come out of this pandemic. Now, listen, we talked about the states of isolation during this pandemic in tonight's episode. So we really want to make sure that as we are excited to get together in person and connect, we do so responsibly. The reality is that as we start to come out of this pandemic, some of us have been vaccinated and some of us have chosen not to be. So listen, we have to live and respect each other's decisions. Now, as we always know, the black community is never a monolith. We have a diversity of thought and action, and we got to respect that. So in terms of being together with one another, with friends and with family, we want to make sure that we are mindful. So whether or not we choose to interact with each other, wearing masks or socially distancing, or whether we choose not to interact at all, it's a personal choice and responsibility. So listen, this is not just about harmonizing our new normal. It's about reconciling a new peace for ourselves. So for Revolt Black News, I'm Ebony K. Williams. See you next time.